Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When any community, religious or otherwise, attempts to promote its agenda, the discussion always begins with an accounting of what makes their group special, or alternatively, of what is wrong with all the other groups. Both approaches, whether self-praising or neighbor-bashing, represent the same lie the deeply held human conviction that God shows partiality. In Mark, no one is good except God. In this light, the fact that Judas betrays Jesus should not come as a surprise. What is surprising, however, is who Judas represents in the story. While everyone else is running around trying to convince everyone else that they are right and everyone else should listen to them, in Mark, as in all of Scripture, the biblical writer evangelizes not by promoting himself or his religious community, but pointedly by proclaiming the sin and hypocrisy of himself and his people. You might ask, is this approach practical? Here's your answer. You are listening to a podcast about the self-critique the biblical writers proposed over 2,000 years ago and trying to figure out how this applies to your life. Do you think their approach worked? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 10 to 16. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 197 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Before we begin this morning, I would like to take a moment, Richard, to promote Father Paul Tarazi's new book, The Rise of Scripture. The Rise of Scripture offers a cogent argument for the particulars of how it is the Bible as we have it became Scripture. Tarazi lays bare the Bible's strategic defense against Hellenistic urban hegemony over the fertile clay and desert environs of Western Asia with the help of biblical Hebrew, a concocted language, according to Tarazi. Scribes wrote and shaped oral and textual materials into a manifesto of cultural resistance in response to the ethnocentric arrogance of the alien occupation the writers of the Bible came to throw all their own false idols into the fire, resulting in the production of the most scathing collective self-examination in human history. It is the thesis of this book that the reading and teaching of Scripture brings human beings together in the barren wilderness of authentic human existence and obedience to and under the care of the ultimate shepherd, the God of Scripture. This is a fantastic work. Father Paul's scholarship 
is the engine that drives all the work that Richard and I do on this podcast. And we hope to have him as a regular guest on the Bible is Literature podcast very soon, a weekly Tuesday program. So we'll have a Tuesday show and a Thursday show. It'll be Tuesdays with Tarazi, and then you're still stuck with Benton and Bulos on Thursdays. So we'll jump right in. I kind of like the fact, Richard, that we ended with a comment about the shepherd and the book teaser, because now we're going to see how the shepherd deals with his sheep. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money and began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Right after the word of the woman who sacrificed for Jesus, Judas decides to betray Jesus. We have to understand this in order if we're going to understand what Judas's betrayal means. Judas surely was one of these people unnamed in the side conversation. Once he learns that there is no revolution on behalf of the poor, once they realize they can't hold Jesus up to their standard, Judas wants a drastic change in events. Remember also that names are metaphoric. They are symbolic in scripture. Judas is a diminutive of Judah, of the people of Judea. So when Judas is betraying Jesus, the metaphor is that the people closest to Jesus are betraying Jesus. And they're betraying him because what they want is something material. Literally, they want to deal in the same currency as Caesar, which is money. Now, I want to caution everybody because it's very easy to see this connection, which is very real and intended by the text that Judas represents the people of Judea, and of course a Jew is someone from Judea. That's where the word comes from. I urge our listeners not to fall into the false trap of anti-Semitism. This text is not anti-Semitic. We were just talking about Father Paul Tarazi's new book and how the Semites took on the Hellenists by engaging in a ruthless self-critique. So when a book written by Pharisees is critical of the Pharisees, when a book written by Pharisees presents the people from the hometown of the Pharisee as the bad guy, it's not an invitation to the Gentiles to say, see, the Jews are the ones betraying Jesus. That's not how the text functions. But you should take note that this is the scathing critique Father Paul is talking about, the scathing self-critique. One should not see this as a critique against Jew, but a Jewish critique against Jew. Correct. It is not the Gentile then who piles on by critiquing the Jew. The Gentile is responsible to critique the Gentile. In Romans, Paul is not saying, as I hear people often talk, Paul is not saying that the Jews had their shot and now it's the Gentile's turn. This is an anti-Semitic reading and it's a complete misreading of scripture. Paul is saying to the Jew, you are under judgment because the law was preached to you. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. Why? Because where the law is preached, sin is exposed. So if the Jew has already received the law, Paul can very easily and readily point out their sin. It's obvious because it's under the magnifying glass of God's instruction. And his ultimate critique of them is that you were given this seed, but you didn't produce an offspring. That's why he mentions the issue of homosexuality, because did you produce an offspring in scripture? 
yes or no. You're critiquing the Gentile, but you yourself aren't bearing fruit. But then he shifts gears and criticizes the Gentiles. Because now that through Christ, by the hand of Paul, the apostle, now that the Gentile is also under the Torah, they fall under the same criticism, and now their sin abounds because grace abounds. If you understand it this way, you stop falling into these petty ethnocentric disputes about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. There are no good guys. There are no bad guys. There is only God and sinners upon the earth. So don't get excited when you see that the people of Judea are being criticized. Don't do it because you're next. That's how the prophets work and that's how Jesus works. It's the self-critique that's so important. I mean, Jesus with Joshua, they're the same names. Joshua, who was the one who entered the promised land, even though all the Hebrews, not yet called Jews, by the way, in the course of the story, without the Hebrews who are rescued from Egypt, there is a separation between Joshua and the rest of the people. Here there is a separation between Jesus and the rest of the people because here Judas chooses the chief priests over Jesus. This is the betrayal. And we hear the betrayal. It's not the betrayal. Hosea is talking about the betrayal, which is the universal betrayal, where human beings try to provide for their own safety and their own security, as opposed to depending completely on God. Judas is doing the same thing. He's trying to secure his own revolution, his own self-preservation, without Jesus, and even working against Jesus because he can't accept the word of the woman who sacrificed on Jesus's behalf. This is the opposite. You have on the one hand the woman who gave ointment to celebrate, to anoint Jesus, and Judas who betrays Jesus and gains money. Shouldn't this money have been given to the poor? And now Judas is going to betray Jesus to get money for what? He hasn't decided yet, I guess. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? It's a beautiful verse because we all know that Jesus is the Passover lamb. We all know that the one who's being prepared to be sacrificed is Jesus. We know this because he was just betrayed by those closest to him. He's being set up. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water and follow him. Here I want to say, Richard, once again, that this is a beautiful metaphor for the teacher-student relationship. This shows the power of someone in their weakness. Jesus has been assailed. He has been criticized. He has been betrayed. And his enemies are preparing to murder him and he's not going to be able to stop them because he was told to submit by his father. And yet, he speaks with authority and he gives instruction. And we talked about this on the podcast before. He gives instruction the same way a father in Morocco gives instruction to his son when he sends him to the market. This house is just past the corner. Go down that street and when you get to the store, you talk to the clerk and so forth and so on. You lay out all the instructions and finally, you include the list of things that he has to get, and you make sure he memorizes it. That's how Jesus is talking here. And there's no price tags either, so you have to make sure he doesn't get cheated also. Convenience! 
is very unfortunate because it makes us less intelligent. And that's why I love this passage in Mark, because it's a reminder that we are dependent on God to give us instructions on what to do down to the last iota of the law. The loyalty that we are to show comes at the expense of ourselves. We begin with the woman who sacrifices the oil. Then we talk with Judas, who gains for himself and is willing to sacrifice Jesus. And the next thing we hear about is the Passover time to sacrifice the lamb. And the point of sacrificing the lamb, as we know from Exodus, and this is something we should all know already, is that by sacrificing the lamb on the Passover, you put the blood on the doorpost, and this is how the angel of the Lord knows to preserve you, knows to save you. Without this blood, you can't be saved. And I know this is something that's very popular in American religion. People talk about this all the time, but I want to emphasize this point that it's only through Jesus's sacrifice that this can be realized. Now, some people would say, well, doesn't that let Judas off the hook? No one blames the butcher for killing the lamb for Passover. So why would we blame Judas for allowing Jesus to be sacrificed, Jesus to be killed? That is not the problem because we know from a long time ago, from Jesus's own mouth, that he was going to be killed and suffer. So why would we blame Judas because Judas made it happen. The reason why is because the way that the author puts it, it was not innocent. It was an act of disloyalty. One has to be very careful because one can even do the correct thing on the surface. But when it comes in the context of disloyalty, it's already incorrect. That's the point in Job. That's exactly the point in Job. Again, we've been reading Job at church with the parish. In the text of Job, he always seems to be loyal at first, but then in some way, systematically, every time he speaks, he calls the justice of the Lord into question. And it's powerful because we know that it's the Lord who's on trial, not Job, because of the conversation with Satan. Job is not a typological prefiguration of Jesus, as many like to say. Because if Job were in Gethsemane, he would not say, thy will be done. He would say, thy will is wonderful, O Lord, but first let me understand why I have to do this. It's a big difference. I like this point that you're making about how it looks correct, and you can even sound correct and look like you're serving, but in fact be serving yourself. And whenever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Again, it's the father giving instructions to his sons to run ahead and prepare the business. It's interesting in my mind that he is asking for a guest room. It's not something he owns. It's something temporary where they're going to stay in town. Judas betrays him. Now, Jesus is going to give some nice, simple instructions to his disciples, and they can carry it out. This is the thing that's so sad about the disciples. When it's follow the man with the pitcher, they can do it. When it's spread the seed, they fall short. When it's do everything that I say, they're following these instructions, just like Peter and the other disciples drop their nets when it's time to follow. They can do it sometimes, but they can't stick with it. And this is the thing you see in every parish. In every parish, you see the people who are there 
who have done the correct thing. But their betrayal in the other things undermine those correct things that they do. These disciples, I'm still nervous about them because we already know that they were the same ones who were saying, well, was it okay if she offered that oil and we didn't sell it and give to the poor? And so Jesus is trying to find a room where he can celebrate the Passover with his students. If he is going to celebrate the Passover, it has to be in a place, like you said, Father, that's a guest chamber. It can't be his house. This contradicts what the Passover is. The Passover is a celebration of leaving. And Jesus, since the first chapter, has been leaving and trying to get out of there and trying to escape and trying to avoid the city and the house. Here, he'll take a room, but for one reason, to enjoy the Passover with his students. And it's a guest room, meaning the residence is not permanent. He's not laying claim to anything. He is sojourning. He is stopping in the wilderness in the tent of meeting to break the Eucharistic bread to celebrate the Passover with his followers. Now, something very important about loyalty that you triggered in my mind, Richard, because again, we talked about this on Sunday when we were exploring the question of submission. Submission is not as simple as merely obeying the instruction against your personal will. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom assumes obedience, but obedience does not assume wisdom. Correct. You cannot have wisdom without obedience to something greater outside of your ego. But just because you've obeyed doesn't mean you let go of your ego. That's what happens with the people who obey and then grumble. Because when the father in Morocco gives instruction to his son, he's not just thinking about how to get to the store and get back with the right stuff. He has to figure out what is the stuff we need to run the household. He has to understand how much money he has in the family budget. He has to be thinking about the safety of his son walking along the road. There's a whole bunch of things that have to be considered. And God forbid the son never mature to become a father to consider the same totality. If all he ever learns is how to go to the grocery store, he's going to be a stay-at-home millennial for the rest of his life. Not to mention he's got four other sons and three daughters that he also has to take care Correct. of. He doesn't have time to dwell on just this one. That's the key with respect to that example. And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So I don't want people to get excited, ooh, wow, how Jesus was able to tell the future and say exactly what was going to happen. Again, we know this is a distraction. We know this is a problem when people get obsessed about it. The fact is that Jesus is ready to teach. Don't be excited about the fact that he set up a room for heaven's sake. Oh, wow, this university is full of fantastic halls. No, that doesn't matter. It's the professors that matter. It's the tent of meeting. That's why it's a guest room. It's not permanent. He is in the wilderness carrying the scroll to the Gentiles, and he's setting up a place where they can hear the content of the teaching preached and break bread together. That's why this was received as a Eucharistic meal in the first century. That's why it was understood this way, because the point of the Passover is to hear the Torah. And the breaking of the bread is a metaphor, because bread gives life, the teaching gives life. That's what this is. 
And the sad irony here is that Jesus isn't just having them go through the motions of Passover. He understands that the Passover means his end so that there can be life. They don't understand it yet. That's the tragedy of the limited loyalty at this stage in the Gospel of Mark of the Apostles. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.